He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast sad. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. O Lord, open my lips so that my mouth might proclaim your praise. We ask, Lord, that as we examine your words tonight, that you would speak to us, that we would hear your word anew and afresh, and Lord, that you would show us what it means to stand in your presence as those who are justified. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. So I want to look at the gospel passage tonight, partly because we're doing the instructed Eucharist and we're talking about prayer and worship, and that's part of what's going on in the passage, is that two men are in the temple and they're worshiping, and Jesus wants to draw a contrast. He wants to draw attention to these men, and I think it's instructive for us to look at the prayer of the Pharisee and the prayer of the tax collector and ask something about the nature of prayer and ask something about the nature of how it is that we even come into the presence of God. So last week, in last week's gospel passage, the verses immediately preceding these, Jesus told the story of the widow who was persistent in her uh, petitions to the unjust judge. And Jesus was giving a picture of persistence in prayer but he closed that story with a question. He said, faith. And you can imagine, maybe some in the crowd were like, you're totally going to find faith when you come to the earth. And Jesus, uh, I think partly, tells this next story to say, don't jump to conclusions. Uh, let's look at it at a deeper level. Let's look at the heart. Let's see what's really going on. You might think of Jesus as many things, but you may not necessarily think of Jesus as a master of human psychology, but he is. He understands how the heart works. He understands what's going on in people's heads, and more than that, he understands people's motivations. So if you look at the first verse of this gospel passage, Jesus tells this story for the explicit reason of sussing out someone's motivations. He says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. He's telling this story because there's a human tendency in all of us to be confident in our own righteousness and to look down on everyone because of that righteousness. That there's a connection between self-righteousness and, in fact, self-righteousness and contempt is, is very potent. And I think the danger for us in this story is that we know that the Pharisee is the bad guy. And it's easy just to set him over and say, well, he's the one that's self-righteous. And he's the one who has contempt for others. I'm like the tax collector. This doesn't apply to me. And part of what I want us with, myself to come to terms with, is that self-righteousness is not a religious problem. It's not exclusively a religious problem. You can find self-righteous people in any walk of life, secular, religious, or otherwise, the temptation to say 
that we matter because of the things that we do, that you're confident in yourself. And then to take the next step to look down on people because measuring. So a story to try to get at this or give an example. Have any of you ever taken a toddler to Target? <laughs> I have. Now, before I took a toddler to Target, I went to Target as a single person, right? And I would see people in Target with their toddlers and I would see meltdowns. I would see the wheels coming off. I would see all manner of things that I promised myself would never happen to me. And then I had a toddler and I took that toddler to Target. Taking a toddler to Target is like Aladdin taking Abu into the Cave of Wonders and saying, don't touch anything. You know he's gonna touch something and the walls are gonna collapse in on you. It's gonna be about food, it's gonna be about toys, it's gonna be about something. Don't take a toddler to Target, it's ill-advised. But sometimes you have to. And what happens is when we get in those situations, we see someone who's doing something that we dislike or makes us uncomfortable, and we say, well, I don't do it that way. Or if I do do it that way, I have my reasons, but not them. So when we do things, it's because of our circumstances, and when other people do things, it's because of their character, right? That's like people with contempt. There's a psychologist named John Gottman. He does uh, research around marriage and things like that. And he has what he calls the four horsemen of the relational apocalypse. Basically, if these four things are in your relationship, it's probably not going to go well. So he's the kind of person that can watch a video of couples and decide if they're going to break up based on how they talk to each other. And one of the things that he looks for is contempt. If there is contempt in a relationship, it's bad. And if we treat our fellow people with contempt, if we treat those around us with contempt, it's not great. And that's what Jesus is saying, that when we are confident in ourselves that the reason that we can stand before God is because we're so then we're going to look at people with contempt. If you want an example when you get home of a mixture of self-righteousness and contempt that's not religious, go watch Michael Jordan's Hall of Fame acceptance speech. I don't know if you've ever seen it, the greatest basketball player of all time, just calling people out who, you beat me out for the highest, but look at me now. It's Michael Jordan. We know he's better than everybody. He doesn't have to tell us. Maybe a modicum of humility. It is crazy. You should watch it. It is a perfect example of someone who is self-righteous and has contempt that is not religious. So I'm telling you this because it's not just a Pharisee problem. It's a human problem. Right? In any realm of life, we can get to this place where it's all about me and I'm going to look down on people who can't measure a toddler in line and target. Because I, you know, I can. So with all of that in mind, let's look at what these men actually pray. So Jesus tells the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who's standing over here. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. So there's the first prayer, and then we'll look at the second prayer in a second. Now, on one level, we could just, because we already have in our mind that the Pharisee is the bad guy, we could just examine the prayer and say, well, the prayer is the problem. Right? It says he uses some form of the first person uh, pronoun five times. It's all about him. Right? But some of the structure of the prayer you can find in the Psalms. This idea that, hey, I thank God that I'm not, you know, 
like one of these sinful people. There's not necessarily something wrong with that on the face of it. And that's why we have to go back to the first part where it says Jesus is looking at people who with contempt. So when we read it through that lens, we see what's you know, going on in the prayer. But I want you to hear that it's not necessarily the words of the prayer itself that are the biggest problem. Yes, the Pharisee is full-on Pharisee, right? He's doing extra stuff. Like if you're going to fast once a week, I'm going to fast twice a week. If you're going to tithe on your income, I'm going to tithe on my spice collection, which is what Jesus says later, right? You tithe on your mint and cumin. You measure out if it's given. That's not necessarily what's problematic. It's the value that he derives from doing those things. He's saying, I do these things and that's what makes me good. I do these things and that's what makes me better than this tax collector who's back there, right? Weeping and wailing and going on about who knows what. I'm gonna stand up and I'm gonna show him how to pray. What's interesting about this prayer uh, is something that the great St. Augustine points out in a sermon on this. He says, imagine uh, going to a doctor and all you tell the doctor is somebody else's symptoms. Right? I'm at the doctor, but what I'm going to talk about is the guy that's really got it bad in the waiting room. He's got green stuff. I don't, you got to see that guy. And the doctor's saying, what's going on with you? Right? There's none of that with the Pharisee's prayer. It's all of everything that's going great. But again, you're coming into the presence of the great physician. So what are you going to pray? Are you going to talk about other people? Are you going to talk to God about what's going on with you? And that's precisely what we see with the tax collector. And of course, this dynamic of the highest person in religious society, the Pharisee, contrasted with the lowest person in society, the tax collector, is part of the thing that, that Jesus wants to pull out the rug from underneath us. It doesn't work for us anymore because we know that the Pharisee is the bad guy. But we have to get in, you know, to our mindset of like you imagining the person that you, does, you don't think would ever have faith. The person you know, the drug dealer, whomever it is that you have in your mind that for us in our society would be a tax collector. I don't know exactly what it would be other than, you know, a drug dealer or a reality television star. Like, the person that you're like, there's no way. There's no way that they're right with God. I don't know what it would be. But maybe you have something in your mind. Because that's part of the story is that there's an unexpected reversal that's going on in this story. And that's a huge theme of the Gospel of Luke that Mary sings after she hears the announcement that she will bear the Christ, right? You've heard, you've looked on your lowly servant and the high will be cast down and the lowly will be lifted up. And that's exactly what Jesus says, echoing the song of his mother. Is this soul that's happening? We've already determined that the Pharisee's the bad guy. And we've already determined that, no, we can't be like him. We're like the tax collector. But self-righteousness can plague us all. So look at the prayer of the tax collector. The tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's a prayer that has echoed through the ages of the Christian church. Um, it takes a form in what we call the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, in the Lenten season or the more penitential seasons of the church calendar, we pray, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We're trying to reflect that in our prayers together, that there's something to this prayer that is vital. This cry for mercy is 
vital. And it shows us that humility is part of how we come to the presence of God. It's part of the reason that we kneel when we pray. It's part of the reason that we kneel when we confess. It's part of the reason that when we come to receive the body and blood of our Lord, we take a posture of reception, not, we're not taking something, we're receiving something. It's a posture of humility. And in the original language in the Greek, it's, it's even more because he says, it's have mercy on Have mercy on me, the sinner. It's not about who else is in the room at that point. It's just about him and God. Right? The Pharisee made it about everybody else in the room and then told God about it. The tax collector says, I'm the sinner. This is between you and me. We're talking about this now. And even the word for mercy here is this deeply theological word related to um, the day of atonement and the mercy seat and all of this Old Testament imagery. And he's saying, you know, think of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat's on top of it. And what's in the Ark of the Covenant? The law. But the mercy seat covers it. And this, this tax collector's saying, I need the mercy seat to cover me because I'm the sinner. That is an attitude of humility. It's something that we do. I'm taking this to heart because we're doing this instructed Eucharist. And Anglican worship is beautiful and the Book of Common Prayer is beautiful. And having the reasons for why we do the things, it, it means so much to me. <laughs> I love it. You know, I have the zeal of a convert. I didn't grow up Anglican. I came into this and that's one of the biggest things for me is we have reasons for what we do. And they're, they're deeply historically rooted. But if that becomes a performance, right? I stand in the ba- presence of God on the basis of my beautiful Anglican worship. Then that's, we're the Pharisee again. But if the Anglican worship is simply a means by which I humble myself in God, like I don't have the words on my own. I need the words of the church. You see how the same prayers can have the two different effects that Jesus is talking about, just based on the posture of our heart. And all of this reminds me of something that Cramner put into the first prayer book, which is what we call the prayer of humble access. And I've got a book of common prayer here. And I want to read this prayer just as a reminder that we come into the presence of God on the basis of Christ. Like we came into the room following the sign of the cross and we'll leave the room following the sign of the cross as if that cross is taking us out into the world because we stand in the presence of God because of what he has done and what he has accomplished. He's the one who can ascend the hill of the Lord. He's the one that is worthy to open the scroll like we sung. And the prayer of humble access, some people don't like this prayer, but I'm gonna tell you why you should like it. The prayer begins, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. There's a deep, which is this idea that worm, meaning the only way I can come to this rail is because of your character, Lord, because you are the merciful Lord. You are the one who has manifold and great mercies, meaning I can't even count the ways that you're merciful to me. They're manifold. And again, I don't presume to come we don't presume to come to the table trusting in our own righteousness. We trust in the righteousness of Christ, the faithful one. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. That's the part people really don't like <laughs> sometimes. It goes against our self-esteem. But we aren't. 
God makes us so. We are worthy, he makes us worthy, but we are not worthy on our own to gather the crumbs under the table. But, love a good but, but thou art the same Lord whose property, whose character, whose being, whose essence is always to have mercy. The Lord is merciful. It's part of his name that he declares to Moses when Moses asks to see the glory of the Lord. I'm compassionate, I'm kind, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in steadfast love. I am merciful. So that's the prayer of humble access. And I just want us to be mindful of that, that reality that that's how we come into the presence of God. It's the text potent. Have mercy on me, the sinner. Be the mercy seat for me, the sinner. Before the confession, we there a portion of the book of Hebrews, since we have such a great high priest, how do we respond? Well, we come boldly with confidence, seeking mercy and grace in time of need. That is true, and so is we do not presume. They're both true. I'm not presuming to come boldly. I'm coming boldly on the basis that I've been made a child of God. So I come boldly to my father as a child comes boldly to their father. We come boldly as children who are not full of presumption. That presumption being, at least I'm not like so-and-so, right? At least I'm better than so-and-so. And this is something C.S. Lewis points out in the screw tape letters. He's like, hey, get your patient, demon, get your patient thinking about all the other people in the room and how annoying they are. And then he won't worship at all. He's thinking about this, was just thinking a story, to judge the mom at Target with the toddler until you go to Target with a toddler. And you're like, I will give you as many squeezies as you want. If we can get out of here alive. That's purely hypothetical. It's never happened. So, think about all this in the context of the worship that, and that we're coming into tonight, that we are invited to taste and see because the Lord is good, not because we are. And we do not presume to come to his table on our own basis, but on his basis. So let us pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak, that you are speaking. And I pray that you would speak to us now, Lord. That you would remind us of all that you've done for us. That you would remind us, Lord, of your manifold mercies ways you've been gracious to us. And Lord, we thank you that it is not by our effort that we come boldly. It's not because we've accomplished, but because you've had mercy. So have mercy on us now. In Jesus' name.